Let that be our prayer this morning, that the Lord would uh, break the word to us and open it to us as we, as we come to look at it this morning. Let me have you take your Bibles out, and we're going to turn once again to Mark's Gospel and to chapter 10 this morning. Verse 46 through 52 will be our reading this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Follow along, and as we read this, let's remember that this is God's Word, breathed out by God, written down, and given to us this morning that we may be blessed by it. Let's hear God's Word this morning. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you have made, that your word that goes forth does not return void, but it accomplishes what you set it to do. And we pray this morning, Lord, that we would be instructed by this word, that we would be encouraged by this word. Father, we pray that, uh, that you would use this passage of scripture uh, to your glory and for our good. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, the living word. Amen. Well, please be seated. Keep your Bibles out, as you know. We'll be looking at this passage uh, this morning, stepping through it. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the conclusion of the second big chunk of Mark's gospel, the second major section of his, his record of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the third part that we'll start looking at next week begins with chapter 11. We've referenced it a couple of times because in chapter 11, Jesus begins that part of Mark's gospel by riding into Jerusalem, beginning the events of what we call Passion Week, ending with his suffering, his, his death, and his resurrection. But for this week, Mark, in his arrangement of the material in his record of Jesus' life, gives to us the record, as we have read here, of a healing. And remember that the different gospel writers writing to different uh, audiences, for different audiences, uh, arrange some of the, the events of Jesus' life 
uh, in, in different ways to, to accomplish their purpose. And Mark here, as he has been giving us this information as we come to this miracle this morning, uh, it, this miracle serves as a bookend to this second big section of the gospel, a section which has focused, if you think back on it, on the subject of discipleship and particularly on the, the ongoing failure, really, of Jesus' own disciples, particularly the twelve, the ones that we know as the apostles. Their failure at many points to understand, uh, to take to heart, and to integrate into their behavior the lessons that Jesus has been teaching them during this time. We've mentioned that, that in this second part, Jesus sort of moves from a, a focus on, the, on dealing with the crowds and the public to focusing more on teaching his disciples. And during this, this, this area of, of Mark's gospel, we've seen that they're not quite getting uh, the lessons. The first bookend, to remind you uh, of this, was back in chapter 8 in verses 22 through 26, which, interestingly enough, is another record of Jesus encountering a blind man. And in that episode, if you recall, Jesus healed this man by putting saliva on his eyes and laying his hands on him. And remember, after he had done that, that Jesus asked this man, what do you see? And the man said, remember, I see people, but they look like trees walking. It's an interesting thing that that Mark includes in an interesting way that Jesus, who, of course, very simply is able to to heal people instantly with a word, without a word, with a touch, without a touch, that he does it in this this two-step process. And after the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking, Jesus laid his hands on him again and healed him completely. And we talked about the fact that this is a picture of what we were going to see in this section, of how the, the disciples who had been given eyes to see still had to have their eyes opened more to understand what Jesus was doing and to, to, to understand and to integrate these things into their lives. So now at the end of this section, we read of Jesus encountering another blind man. So to put the, the bookends on this, and he will heal him as well. And seeing, no pun intended, what we have in the intervening chapters, this is clearly a purposeful bookmarking of the section, indicating that the focus of the section has been on the ongoing blindness of Jesus' disciples. He's been teaching, but they haven't been learning. But he's also been teaching us as well, and prayerfully, we have been learning the lessons from Christ about what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple of our Lord Jesus. Now, because we're coming to the end of this section, before we sort of jump into the, the uh, narrative for today, let me take you quickly and show you sort of how this section has, has progressed, how it has built itself up, and show you in very summary form what I mean by, by what we have seen here. You know, after the healing of that first blind man that I just mentioned uh, that introduces the section, we come then to the first revealing of Jesus to the disciples of, of his upcoming 
suffering and death and resurrection. Remember we said that there are three times that he does that. This was the first. Peter then hearing that and not learning, not accepting Jesus' prophecy in chapter 8 verse 32, he rebuked Jesus, pulled him aside and said, this is not going to happen. And following, which was followed, of course, by Jesus rebuking Peter very strongly and then teaching the disciples about discipleship. Whoever would follow me, he said, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. After that came the transfiguration with the multi-layered witness to Jesus' glory and deity by by his transfiguration, transforming before them, the three, Peter, James, and John, that he took up to the the mountain. Uh, Secondly, the presence of Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. And then third, with the very voice of God from heaven uh, saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Coming down the hill from that, we saw the failure then of the disciples to heal a demon-possessed boy, which was followed by Jesus' explanation that their failure was caused by their neglect of prayer, which is necessary, which is certainly necessary for discipleship. In chapter 9, in verse 30, Jesus then for a second time prophesies his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. And in that second uh, telling, foretelling of that, now he included the fact that he is not just going to fall into the hands of, of these men who would kill him, but that he would be delivered over to them. That was followed immediately. Jesus talking about what was going to happen to him, how he was going to be betrayed, how he, how he was going to be delivered over. It was followed then immediately by the disciples demonstrating their blindness by arguing between themselves about who was going to be the greatest among them. To which Jesus replied uh, with, with teaching, saying that if anyone would be first, he must be last. He must be the servant of all. And that anyone who confesses Christ is to be received. Well, to to demonstrate how much they had not learned from that, the disciples immediately relate to Jesus how they had tried to stop a man who was ministering in the name of Christ, who was casting out demons in the name of Christ. And the indications that we got as we looked at when we were there was that he was doing this properly, that he was doing this uh, for the glory of God. But the disciples said, we stopped him or we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. Remember, we talked about that. That earns another rebuke from Jesus as the disciples continue to not learn what he's teaching them. Another lesson on discipleship comes as Jesus speaks of the seriousness with which disciples must deal with sin that remains in them. That brings us to chapter 10 where as as young children then were brought to Jesus for him to bless them, that the disciples, forgetting what Jesus had said earlier about receiving uh, such, that they rebuked those who brought these children to Jesus, to which Jesus again teaches them that every true disciple is like and must be like a, a child in his implicit trust of the Lord. 
Then we have the episode of the rich young ruler. And that brought great consternation to the disciples and brings them to, to ask of Jesus, well, who can be saved then? If the, if the rich can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus replies that man on his own, left to his own devices, can't. But that with God, even such a great thing is possible. And the reaction to that, by the still weak of sight, Peter is to remind Jesus, well, we've left all things behind to follow you. What is there for us? And Jesus then assures them that suffering for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake, which is part of discipleship, will be rewarded by God now and in eternity. And now, as the group draws nearer to Jerusalem, for a third time Jesus spoke of his coming death, now giving much more detail about it concerning, uh, again, his suffering, death, and resurrection. And on the heels of this very solemn telling of this by Jesus again, James and John show that, at best, the disciples are still only seeing myopically. Uh, They come to Jesus, James and John did, seeking not to find out how they can serve, but seeking places of honor for themselves in Christ's kingdom, which yet again prompts Jesus to teach that in the kingdom of God, the humble servant of others is the greatest not the one with the most ambition, and that even Jesus, even the Son of Man, came humbly, came in that way, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the disciples, like the blind man at the beginning, though they've been given the ability to see and understand, show that they still just see these things dimly. And now, to wrap up this section, a reminder about blindness and a reminder about Jesus' ability to heal it, whether that's physical blindness or spiritual blindness. And so now coming to the text, what I want us to do is to go through this narrative. It's a very brief narrative regarding the miracle that took place there. And then to go back through a few things again and just mention some of the the seven verses here and note some rather remarkable things that speak to us this morning, uh, speak to us more deeply than what we might think. So the event happens there in verse 46. Mark says, as they were leaving Jericho, Remember Jericho. Remember Jericho from your Old Testament studies, no doubt. The children even learn about Jericho in their Sunday school classes and how the walls came tumbling down. It was the first city that was conquered by the armies of Joshua and the people of God after entering the Promised Land. Jericho was a very old city. In fact, it's one of the two most ancient cities known to man. It was, of course, destroyed by Joshua, well, by God, actually, and was put under a curse that no one should rebuild that city except, the text says, at the cost of his two sons, that the foundation would be laid at the cost of one son, the gates would be laid at the, at the cost of another, something which literally was fulfilled in the days of Ahab 
by a man named Hiel. In the days of, of Herod, then he built a new city, also called Jericho, just, uh, just down the road from the, the first. And so as we come to this and, and hear that they came to Jericho, it could be either one of these that is the site of this event. But Jesus and his group comes to and then leaves Jericho, uh, Jesus does, with his disciples and a great crowd, Mark says to us. And we saw last week, remember, the way that this crowd was set up and how they were heading toward Jerusalem. Jesus, with his, his group, was sort of, remember, Jesus was taking the lead. Even as he knows he's going to Jerusalem to die, Jesus is so focused. He has set his mind to go to Jerusalem, and he takes the lead uh, as, they, as they go toward Jerusalem. And then behind him was the, the 12 apostles, and then behind them was this larger group of people. Generally, we would call them disciples. Uh, Mark calls them those who followed. Uh, it would be a broader, growing group of, of those who were counted as Jesus' disciples. It's also likely, though, that this great crowd that Mark mentions in verse 46, that this great crowd also includes a growing number of pilgrims who are headed toward Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, which is uh, coming in a very short time. Jericho was actually a popular sort of meeting place. Uh, we very often have those with our families and stuff. We'll meet you in wherever it happens to be. We'll meet you in Barstow, and then we'll go on together. They would meet in, in Jericho, and then together all go on to, to Jerusalem. Um, those who had come from the east would. Those who had come from the north, who had, would have avoided, as the Jews often did, avoid Samaria and gone around, that they would meet together in Jericho. And so there's a growing crowd of people coming out of Jericho. Um, also, just outside of Jericho, alongside the road, we see here, was another individual, a pitiable character who Mark identifies for us here in the text as Bartimaeus, a blind beggar and the son of Timaeus. Did you know that the name Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus? No? Well, neither did Mark's Gentile readers, so don't feel bad. Uh, that's why he tells them. Mark gives an indication here that he's writing to, to Gentiles by explaining that Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. But why does he bother with a name at all? Well, that's kind of Mark's style. Also, there's irony in this man's name. The word Timaeus means honor. And so Bartimaeus, or son of Timaeus, means son of honor. This man doesn't seem to fit that category. It's also thought that this man may have been in the time after this incident, as time went on, uh, a, a known member of the Church of Christ. And so it may have been that he mentions him because people would say, oh yeah, we know him. Regardless, at this point, he's sitting by the roadside, as he would have done every day, for who knows how long he's done it. A man of no means, of no account, of no influence, no station in life really, and no possessions really apart from his cloak, 
that serves as both a place in front of him to collect the coins that people would drop down to him during the day, and at night, it would be what kept him warm. Bartimaeus is there, alongside the road. That was his position. And he was positionally as well as physically off to the side. People probably saw Bartimaeus there every day, and yet those same people probably didn't see Bartimaeus there every day. He was just a fixture there, a beggar. Um, Since as a blind man he had no other means of support, uh, his means of support was begging, no alternative. And Bartimaeus, no doubt, especially at this time of year, had multitudes of people going by him. And perhaps this was a time of year when he would be given a lot of, of, of alms. Multitudes of people would pass by. But on this day, he, with his enhanced hearing, as your hearing picks up, as we know, when, when you're blind, he caught the sound of a name floating on the breeze, a name being called and mentioned as one who was part of the crowd this day, who was coming by his little station there alongside the road. The name was Jesus. Now that name was a common enough name, a name that he probably heard every day almost. But he hears that this is Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus the Nazarene who is coming. They didn't have last names back then, so people were known either by their father's name, like son of Timaeus, or from where they were from, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene from the city of Nazareth. And somehow, we're not told how here in this text, though, that, that sitting alongside this busy road, Every day he picked up information as people walked by, but he knows about this man, this Jesus the Nazarene. And now he hears that he's coming by. And Bartimaeus knew enough, had heard enough, knew his Bible enough to make the connections that this man was not just Jesus from Nazareth, but that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And he began to cry out, Mark tells us, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now we haven't heard this term, son of David, yet. That term was, for the Jews, that was another way of saying the Messiah. It is a term that is dripping with messianic nationalistic um, ideology. The son of David is a reference to the main character of what we read in our Old Testament reading this morning, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. The promised ruler from the line of David to whom God would give the throne of David, would give the throne over his people and whose kingdom would last forever. That's the son of David. That's the Messiah. Now this title is only directly attributed to Jesus once in the book of Mark. Right here. 
but it's an important turning point in the people's recognition of Jesus. Remember back right at the very beginning of this section, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave various answers. Then he said, but who do you say I am? And what was Peter's response? You are the Christ. And what does that word mean? The Messiah. You are the Messiah. And remember then that when Peter proclaimed that, Jesus told them not to tell anyone that because it wasn't time yet for people to come to that realization, for people to know that. It wasn't that time. Guess what? Now it's time. And blind Bartimaeus is the one who gets to spill the beans on this, if you will. But tomorrow, next week to us, when Jesus climbs on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem, the whole crowd will be proclaiming Jesus to be fulfilling the promise of the coming of the Son of David, the Son of God, the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is, with Bartimaeus shouting out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is the introduction to the chorus of the triumphal entry and the public identification of Jesus as the Messiah. Good job, Bartimaeus. But this is not at all his intent. He has something else on his heart and a request of his own on his dusty lips. He is quite different from the last one that we recall who came up to Jesus with a question, the rich young ruler. He's quite different than him. And it is, he is quite different than James and John, the disciples who came with a request. But first, Bartimaeus has to get Jesus' attention. And so he cries out, verse 47 tells us, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Remember, we talked about how the disciples had rebuked those who brought the children to Jesus. Well, now it's the crowd's turn to rebuke one who is trying to get to Jesus. Verse 48 says that they do. It says, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Get back in your spot, Bartimaeus. Don't bother Jesus. He is on an important mission. He is dead set on going to Jerusalem. And he doesn't have time to stop. He doesn't have time for you. Just sit down and be quiet. But to this desperate man who knows that his one chance for deliverance is passing by somewhere on that road that he can't see, it's going to take more than the rebuke of the crowd to stop him. And so Mark says he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, there's a huge crowd here coming by, growing as people are, as I said, meeting together and, and going down this road to go to Jerusalem. There's a huge crowd. There's Jesus, there's the 12, there's the disciples, those, those, that group who's following him, there's the crowd of those pilgrims just going to Jerusalem. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of bustling, there's people hollering at Bartimaeus to be quiet. But Jesus, on this day, 
walking along with his careful hearing, caught the sound of a name floating on the breeze. His name being called. And more than just his name, he hears, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And in verse 49, Mark says, and Jesus stopped. Let us learn this about Jesus. No matter how busy he was, no matter how focused on this journey to Jerusalem that he knows will be his last, he knows what faces him there, what awaits him there. Jesus, our Lord, who came not to be served, but to serve, he hears the desperate cries of this man and he stops in his tracks to serve him. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Bring him here. And now, interestingly, this huge crowd that had just been rebuking Bartimaeus at the command of Jesus, again showing Jesus' authority, we've seen that in the past, this crowd turns from discouragers to encouragers. Saying to him, Mark says, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Can you imagine how that thrilled Bartimaeus? Can you imagine what, what went through his, his mind to hear Jesus is calling you? Get up. If you can't, then look at verse 50. Look at the description here. He threw off his cloak, his only possession, He sprang up. He didn't stand up. He didn't rise up. He sprang up. Again, this this whole description here sort of drips with the eyewitness testimony of Peter, from whom we've learned that Mark got his information. Peter was there. Peter saw this. He threw off his cloak. He sprang up and came to Jesus. Bartimaeus, running as best that he could, But the people at this point, certainly the encouragers now, guiding him, helping him along to come to Jesus. And when he gets there, Jesus asks him a question. And if you were with us last week, it's a familiar question because it's the same question that he asked James and John when Jesus, or um, just a short time ago, when they came to him, remember, with a, a request, we shall say. Jesus said to him, Verse 36, I'm sorry, um, verse 49. Verse 51, we'll get there, verse 51. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Remember, that's what he said to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Remember the answer that they gave, that James and John gave, when Jesus asked them that? They wanted a promise that they would sit on thrones, that they would be at Jesus' right hand and left hand, in his kingdom, when he came into his glory. That's what they wanted. They wanted that promise. Bartimaeus doesn't. This sort of makes me think of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. One says, I'm not like others, and I'm glad of that. The other says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. See what Bartimaeus does. Bartimaeus, the blind man, in verse 51, he says, Rabbi, 
Actually, the original says Rabboni, which is an enhanced form of that word, and it is a very respectful. It means master. It means Lord. Rabbi, he says, let me recover my sight. That's what Bartimaeus wants. Jesus, I want to see. Another man once said to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. This man says, let me have my sight. That's what I want. And Jesus, of course, who knows the heart of all men, knew this man's heart. And he knew that this statement was an affirmation of this man's faith in the mercy of God and the willingness and the ability of Jesus to heal him. And then Jesus, well, he doesn't do anything, does he? No pulling him aside like he did in the uh, earlier episode. No making mud, no spit, not even the laying on of hands. But in a super simple, low-key statement, Jesus, who spoke the universe into existence, speaks and says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And in one of those brilliant, beautiful understatements of Scripture, Mark writes in verse 52, and immediately he recovered his sight. See, that's the way Jesus heals. Immediately. And we've seen Jesus heal so many as we've gone through the book of Mark. We've come to expect that. But what happens next, we might not expect. What we expect, as we think back on the book of Mark, as we've gone through this, we might expect that the man then went on his way. Perhaps uh, he went to his home, rejoicing, giving thanks to God, we read in some places, uh, proclaiming the goodness of God. But here, right at the end of the passage, we read this. And followed him on the way. Bartimaeus, the now former blind man, through a faith given to him and exercised, now joins the group. Can you imagine this scene? I think of when Peter healed the, lo- the lame man on the way to the temple in the book of Acts. You know, he said, found, saw a lame man there, and he said, I, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. And Acts 3.8 says that leaping up that this man stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. That's the scene kind of I imagine here. Bartimaeus walking and leaping and praising God as he follows Jesus and the disciples down the road. Bartimaeus taking in every detail of the crowd and the geography the blue sky, the sun, and the son of David who had given him his sight and perhaps much more. And what is that? Well, the words in verse 52 that we translate or the word that we translate made well in the original is the same word that is translated elsewhere, delivered and even saved. The fact that Mark ends this scene and ends this larger section with these words certainly seem more than a coincidence. Who knows that this man did not and probably did receive more than just his sight that day. 
but he followed them. He joined with them. He became a follower of Jesus at that point. Now, to put this in perspective, then, as the crowd in our story here continues their journey towards Jerusalem, let's pause and think just a little more on what we've seen, what we've read here. A few things that sort of stuck out to me as I was looking at how we can see the bigger picture, how we can see ourselves in this story. A few things here that we'll just mention briefly, eight of them actually, but just briefly. The first thing is let us note that as Bartimaeus was a blind beggar, beloved, so are we. We do not naturally have eyes to see the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, and so we are left to sit alongside the road. We are without the means to help ourselves, and so we need to rely on another. The second thing is that we should be mindful that we were, as he was, without hope until he recognized Jesus. Bartimaeus had ears to hear and recognized Jesus before he had eyes to see. Until the Spirit of God opens up those things to us, we're happy to sit in the dust. We're happy to beg for alms. But when he does when we recognize that the one coming before us is Jesus, the Nazareth, or of Nazareth, the son of David, when we recognize that, we cry out to Jesus for mercy. Not before, just like Bartimaeus. Third thing is let us be reminded that that cry is the appropriate thing. Bartimaeus called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the appropriate cry of anyone who is confronted with Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on me. We need mercy. We need grace. We need the pity of the Lord. The fourth thing, looking back at that phrase from verse 49, this is just so wonderful, so full of glorious gospel truth that Jesus stopped. The mercy of our Lord is shown here in this, that Jesus stopped. And it's shown every time we call on him. His ears are never closed to us. Never closed to anyone who comes. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no one who calls genuinely upon the name of the Lord that Jesus says, I got it somewhere I got to be. Jesus stopped. Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will not cast out. And then notice also the next thing here is the, the immediacy of Bartimaeus' response. And this reminds us that, that when God, through the Spirit, opens a man's heart to the truth of the gospel, and that man or woman or child sees both his need for Christ and the truth of the gospel that man sees Christ's love for him, that man, that woman, that child will come without fail because Jesus has acted first. This guy, Bartimaeus, was not like those elsewhere in the Gospels who said, well, let me go first and bury my dead. Let me first say farewell to those in my home. No, he abandoned his only possession 
And not begrudgingly, but he threw it off. As if, you know, i got to get rid of this thing. It might get in my way. It might trip me up as I'm going to Jesus. He threw it away and came to Jesus. He leapt up and came to Jesus. The sixth thing is that we also see here the proper question of a perceptive heart. James and John wanted positions. Remember, they wanted positions of authority. Bartimaeus wanted his blindness removed. Let me recover my sight. Open my eyes that I might see. And Jesus opened his eyes that he could see more, that he could see who I am and who you are, O God, and what great things you have done and promised that you will do. Open those spiritual eyes. That's what was done for Bartimaeus. And so let us note next also that it is through faith that Bartimaeus received his healing. We know from elsewhere that faith is a gift of God. And here also, we should mimic the faith of Bartimaeus who, though not seeing, believed. Peter gave the same encouragement. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And beloved, being given such faith, we must by that faith receive the free gift that God gives us. And then finally, we see that the result of such a gift of grace and mercy is to do what Bartimaeus did, to follow him on the way, to follow Jesus on the way. The words, again, right there, those words, followed him and the way, those are both discipleship words. What is the call that Jesus makes to his disciples? Follow me. And God has given us not just sight, but life itself, eternal life. And so, beloved, let us then, in reply, join him, join that cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, both of those who have preceded us into glory and those who are around us today, and let us follow Christ on the way, his way, the way of life. You know, having come through that narrow gate onto that narrow way, Let us each rejoice, walking and leaping and praising God. Beloved, are you glad this morning that Jesus stopped for you? That he opened your eyes, that you would see your need and that you would come to him, that you would call out to him for mercy? That he gave you faith so that even though you can't see him with the physical eyes, you can and do with the eyes of faith. And that though you don't see him, you love him because he first loved you. Are you glad for that? If you are, and I believe that you are, then follow him on the way. Enjoying what he has opened your eyes to see the glory of his kingdom. So as we come to the end of chapter 10, the number of the disciples of Jesus is gloriously one more 
than it was when they left Jericho. Rising before them as they come out of Jericho is what's called the ascent of Adumim, a small road that runs 18 miles from Jerusalem or from uh, Jericho to Jerusalem. Rising from an elevation there of 800 feet below sea level to the summit of the Mount of Olives at 3,000 feet above sea level. Quite a climb. And that is what is before them. That is where they are headed. And we'll catch up with them there, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we were blind, that by your grace and your mercy, now we see. We thank you that you stopped for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you took this journey of which we are reading um, in the first place for us. But Father, we pray that you would help us to as recipients of your, of your wonderful, glorious grace, help us to follow you on the way, knowing that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that, that everything that takes place, Lord, is used by you for our good, for the good of our salvation. Let us rejoice, O oh God, that you, did, that you did stop for us. And we thank you. Amen.